Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. On the first episode of our daily 61st New York Film Festival edition, director Todd Haynes, screenwriter Sammy Birch, and producers Christine Vachon, Pamela Koffler, Jessica Elbaum, and Sophie Moss join NYFF Selection Committee member Rachel Rosen to discuss May-December, making its North American premiere at this year's festival as the opening night selection. Opening night of NYFF 61 is presented by Campari. From the sensational premise born from first-time screenwriter Sammy Birch's brilliant script, director Todd Haynes has constructed an American tale of astonishing richness and depth, which touches the pressure and pleasure points of a culture obsessed equally with celebrity and trauma. Elizabeth, a popular television star, ingratiates herself into the lives of Gracie, whom she'll be playing on screen, and her much younger husband, Joe, to better understand the psychology and circumstances that more than 20 years ago made them notorious tabloid figures. It's a feat of storytelling and pinpoint precise tone that is shrewd in its wicked embrace of melodrama, while also genuinely moving in its humane treatment of tricky subject matter, boasting a trio of bravura, mercurial performances by Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman, and Charles Melton. May-December is a film about human exploitation, the elusive nature of performance, and the slipperiness of truth that confirms Todd Haynes' status as one of our consummate movie artists. May-December will open at Film at Lincoln Center on November 17th. To learn more and get tickets for this year's New York Film Festival, visit filmlink.org. Enjoy this conversation with Haynes, Birch, and the producers of May-December. Thank you all um, for joining us. I think um, normally I would start a Q&A talking to the director, but in this case, I think I'm going to start with Sammy uh, because you originated this screenplay before Todd got involved. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, yeah, I wrote this as a spec. Can you say a little bit more about the origin of the screenplay and what interested you originally um, in this story? It's so complex and there are so many different amazing layers and strands and moods to the final piece. Uh, I'm just always interested what the original spark was. Yeah, um, I feel like the original spark was this character of of Joe, of being this idea of um, a man in the situation being 36 and about to be an empty nester, a person that hadn't really had any time to process what happened to him and, and the sort of media blitz that followed um, and the heartbreak of that. So that that was really the, the first kind of spark of the idea that then made me feel I really wanted to write it. Uh, and then Jessica, you you are, are the next piece in this puzzle, I think. Uh, so maybe you can talk about uh, how um, the, how the script came to you and what sparked your interest in it. Yeah. So um, a friend and our agent Blair Cohan sent it to me and just said, "You've got to read the script immediately. Um, I think you're going to love it." And I did. Um, and I was so drawn to the complexities and remember closing it, not knowing how I felt, which I loved so much. Um, and then, uh, Will read it and we were like, we would love nothing more than to, to 
meet Sammy and hopefully get the opportunity to work on this with her, which we did. And then next came Natalie and Sophie. So how did that happen? <laughs> well, Jess sent it to us and really, you know, loved it at first sight. Really felt like it was a very unique um, original script that we um, rarely read. Um, something is good. And Natalie, you know, thought we talked with Jess and thought that you know, we needed to have an incredible director and Natalie thought of Todd, sent it to Todd. Um, and that's how Todd and Keller then joined uh, the team. I mean, I think it's unusual for you to um, come to a project this way, if I'm not mistaken, meaning something that someone sends you that you didn't originate. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and what your thought process was in, in deciding that this was something you wanted to take on. It, it actually um, <clears throat> started along a while ago with the script of Carol, uh, the whole project of Carol, the price based on Patricia Highsmith's novel, The Price of Salt, which had been kicking around for like almost 20 years in development. Um, and that was a project that came to us through very close dear friends of ours who, are, um, who had inherited it as producers in the UK. And before that, I had adapted, uh, this was just my own decision with my writing partner, John Raymond, um, Mildred Pierce the, from the James M. Came novel. And um, that was my first episodic uh, to date um, small screen uh, project. So I've been moving in the direction of trying out different methods of how to find material. And of course, even the films I've written in and, and um, develop myself and research often come from other sources and are ways of interpreting the histories around artists and musicians and, and or, or works by f filmmakers like Douglas Sirk. And so I've always felt like I've been an interpreter of existing uh, languages in film and in culture. And Wonderstruck was a script that came to me, and Dark Waters was a script that came to me, and the Velvet Underground documentary I had done last was a was something that was suggested for me to do, and and it was again a, a completely new territory for me, and, and an extraordinary thing to 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 work to play with. We were cutting that. Um, in the height of COVID, when this script came to me, a lot of scripts were circulating during COVID because everything was shut down and everybody was speculating what to do next. And, and Natalie and I had discussed other projects in the past. So there was an interest on both our parts to try to find something that we could do together. And, but this script was something else and left an impression on me that I, that stayed with me. And, and we started to talk about it right away, uh, Natalie and I and share notes and then talked to Sammy and met Sammy all of course, remotely. And then really the way, the whole way the film got turned into a real production happened very quickly and with a lot of moving parts and suddenly opening up and aligning um, 
brief moments of freedom for me and the two actors that we jumped on last year. Maybe, Killer, you can talk about some of those um, quickly moving parts. I mean, was there anything um, especially urgent or surprising? Um, yeah, the the location was a big inflection point, actually. Uh, Sammy's original script was set in Camden, Maine. And, of course, pragmatists that we are, there's not a tax credit in Maine. <laughs> so we had, we really, a movie like this, which is made 100% independently, needed to consider that. And it had to be in, set in May, That's which right. we couldn't do in the fall when we all were free. Yeah. Yeah. So the weather and the, and then, you know, as happens when Todd gets his fingerprints all over something, the kind of creative values of something start to immediately emerge. And Savannah, Georgia became a great idea. And we sent Todd and his team down there and it, they kind of fell in love. And we built the production plan around being able to shoot in that place. So that was a, that was one of those moments where we're like, okay, we locked in a plan. Now we just got to move to get grab the actresses' availabilities. But but it was really, I think, over Fourth uh, of July weekend where we began the weekend, think trying to figure out how to fit the movie into Natalie and Julianne's schedule at the very end of the year, and what kind of compromises that would bring in terms of weather. And, I mean, we were literally sitting there going, how long are the leaves on the trees in Savannah? And who can tell us for sure? And all of those things. And then there was a giant schedule change for Julianne that flipped everything back around, literally from one day to the next. And we really got what we wanted. I, I want to come back just to the, I mean, what impresses me so much about this film is that it's functioning on so many different levels and somehow they all managed to be in perfect harmony. Um, I'm not sure you can articulate, but I, I want you to talk about some of those, um, you know, the, the different moods that the film is playing with the resonance between those different moods. You know, it started on the page. It started with this dedicated sense of discomfiture that Sammy protected in the writing, a slight distance and a refusal to sort of form moral opinions about the characters or redeem either of the female characters in the course of the film. And I, I, I love that. Natalie loved that. And when we shared it with Julianne, she loved that. And we so for me, the task was to try to find a visual and stylistic language and a series of tonal decisions that would give the viewer a comparable place to interrogate what they were watching. But I also felt it was really important because it, I felt that on the page and I really love that about it, that, that there was an element of pleasure in doing so. It, was, it, was, it made you uncomfortable every page. <laughs> but there was a there was a there was an excitement about interrogating yourself as you read it right and i wanted that to be an experience for the viewer and so we there were just a few things and i i don't know how much we want to get into all that stuff now but there were a few decisions that that helped me to start to um set in place some tonal ideas and it had to do with the music it had to do with a very restrained camera 
Um, it had to do with looking at movies that I immediately thought of, like films by Bergman, in particular Persona. Um, but bringing to all of that a different kind of mischief, I think, in the way the audience might be able to navigate it, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's exactly what I... <laughs> um, well, I, I would like you to just dig in a little more to those decisions since we have a couple minutes. That was what that question was going yeah. Like I said, look, when I read the script, I, I, and some of this we've talked about and some of this we haven't, so it'll be so fun to finally have her on board with us. <laughs> this is a very exciting day for us and to have Sammy with us and you know it 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 helps us a little bit with the grief of not having the actors with us but um but the f uh, I, I read that monologue of 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 Elizabeth toward the end of the movie and I immediately thought of the scene in in Bergman's Winter Light where Ingrid Thulin delivers a letter to the lens of the camera in a black and white in a in, in the film is shot in black and white in a medium shot against a neutral background I remember seeing it when I was in high school and being completely riveted by the performance. By it was an un, it's an unrequited love letter to a, pre, a priest character in the movie, and I love the movie. And I, but it was and it was the performance, but it was the simplicity and austerity of the shot that made such an impact. And I thought I have to shoot, I have to do this movie if only to shoot that monologue <laughs> that way, and then. It was a series of sort of as is, can be the case in your stylistic searching for how to justify that. What would be the tonal language that would would make that work and have that be meaningful? And of course, there are all these scenes in mirrors. And and it's about an actor studying a subject and learning how to become and interpolate that subject and internalize that subject and that strange process and that creepy process that goes on between the merging of the two women. And of course, persona is another seminal urtext for the female merging mirroring story. And there are moments, even though they're not necessarily played as mirrors where the two women ultimately do turn their gaze to the lens of the camera and what Bibby Anderson or Liv Oman, I can't remember who, because they already blurred by this point, um, brushes the hair slightly off the forehead of the other. And um, of course, these were um, ideas that, that also circulated in, in the film. And uh, it, it just sort of went from there where I, I thought of this, this stationary restrained camera that had that sense of observation. And around this time last year, the movie The Go-Between by Joseph Losey from 1971 played on Turner Classic Movies. And it's a film that I remember I think I'd seen when I was a kid. Um, but it had fallen out of circulation. I feel like I hadn't seen it in so long. And the score by Michelle Legrand in that film is an astonishment. It slaps you in the face <laughs> from the very first opening credits of the movie. And you are on alert and in the most exciting way. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pastoral coming of age story of a boy who goes to his brother, rich brother's family's country house for the summer and develops an infatuation with his beautiful sister, Julie Christie and so forth. 
in a way, this, the score feels almost more outside the eventual plot of the go-between than even the sort of complicated moral background of this story. But I loved how it put the viewer in a state of active uh, reading of the film. Um, in a sort of mysterious, you know, ominous, investigatory state, almost like the one that uh, Elizabeth undertakes as an actor. And so those, and we, so we worked with this music. We, we, we used it in the product, in pre-production of the movie. We used it while shooting the movie. We used it while cutting the movie. Until finally I came to Marcelo Zarvos, my composer, and said, Marcelo, <laughs> I think... We gotta try to use this music, man. It is baked into the DNA of the film and the way the film seems to be working for the people we've been showing it to. And so, he, but then he took it up, he made it his own. He, you know, there was other temp music that we'd thrown in there and Marcelo rearranged the entire score and, and wrote original music for it and we re-recorded it all from scratch. Um, so I had the amazing Marcelo Zarva score, but I also was able to retain the um, powerful musical signature from Michelle Legrand. Uh, I, so I, now I just have to ask a follow-up question of Sammy based on that, because since Todd keeps saying that all these different levels uh, were in the original screenplay, I'm wondering if you had similar touchstones uh, in terms of how you were thinking about those moods while you were writing the original screenplay. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I really like the tonal mix of humor and and real sad, genuine sadness and heart heartbreak. Um, I feel like some of the humor is kind of intentionally, it, it's so uncomfortable that it, it's, it, it breaks the tension it's needed. Um, and then some is more, I don't know, maybe acerbic dealing with this actress coming to town and, and the Hollywood machine of it. Um, and the satire of that. Um, but yeah, that, that's, um, that's what I am interested in as a viewer and, and everything. <laughs> Great. Okay. So now, uh, we're going to open it up to your questions. Well, we'll start with, uh, yes. Um, how did you approach seeking truth in this film? And it's sort of fuzzy, murky qualities. I don't know if I ever do seek truth in the film or if the film is ever truly um, um, enlisted to provide it. You know, I think more it's questions are raised about how we go about the industry of making truth. Who is enlisted in that process? Um, how partial vision of vision this notion of how sort of precious a vision of that is, how how much we all kind of think, oh yeah, man, the truth, yeah, let's all get there. But really, <laughs> the questions that are behind that are really important ones. And um, and there's something really curious that goes on in the sort of power dynamic between these two female characters, where one is, comes with all of this privilege and power from without, from the Hollywood machine industry and these notions of truth that we all nod to, you know, benignly. 
and who seems to be investigating and finding search at any cost to the point where we're like, wait a minute, she went that far? You know, what is, where are her, where are her limits? But then there's a character in Gracie, and of course you're comparing the two women throughout the course of the film, but there's a character in Gracie for whom uh, not looking at things is a source of resolute uh, survival. And, and, and she is quite, quite outspoken about the fact that um, insecure people are very dangerous. I'm not insecure, meaning I don't question anything that I've done, you know, or at least that's the armor that she holds up. And so when you sort of think that the person who has all the power and is knocking down the lies and getting to the truth is the one who's ultimately going to quote unquote win, you ultimately see how that sense of refusal to look at things plays a contrary, uh, countervening, you know, power against the former person. And all of this you're, you're, you're negotiating in your head <laughs> as you watch the, the film and as you read it. But uh, none of it would have made possible without this sort of collateral damage of Elizabeth's um, breaking through. None of this would have enabled Joe to have the potential of looking at himself um, in ways that were just not allowed for all these years. And so, and that clearly, as Sammy has described, is the character with whom we, sh we, we um, feel the most hope. We look at the kids with hope. There's a, there's a chance that some of these folks are gonna survive this. And I think part of it is the contradiction or the you know, dialectic of this uh, truth versus resistance. Hello, I'm Ben from People Magazine. Congratulations on the movie. Um, my question's for our screenwriter here. Um, obviously, it's a work of fiction, but we know people will compare this to the real-life story of Mary Kay Letourneau. Did you research that case at all when writing this? When did you start writing it? And, yeah. Um, well, I, I started writing it in 2019. Um, <clears throat> and I really... I, I really wanted a fictional story that that dealt with this tabloid culture of the 90s that has kind of seemingly bled into this true crime um, biopic world we're in right now um, and kind of question uh, that transition and why we want to keep recreating these stories. Um, so I think that that was the the real uh, jumping off point for me. But did you follow that Mary Kay Letourneau case as it was happening? You seem like you're too young. <laughs> I'm a baby, so actually I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, the, all, all of these these kind of stories like this that are in the ether, yeah, are, you know, just completely embedded in, I think everyone's like cultural uh, history. I think you created the most fascinating lisp in film history. <laughs> <laughs> this performance, how it, how it comes and goes and 
moves from one to the other. Please tell me about the lisp. <laughs> uh, I did not create the lisp. Um, there are some people who are missing today um, who could speak so beautifully about how they built these characters. And of course, Juliana, we shot this movie in 23 days in Savannah with very limited resources. And that meant there was no rehearsal time and no, and that's, you know, it's not, these aren't, I mean, that schedule's unusually short, but the fact that there isn't rehearsal time is not unusual in, in films I've made. Um, it, but it meant that um, the burden on Julianne more to completely come up with the spe specificity of Gracie was enormous because we started shooting in the house scenes right away. And, and things like the wigs, which had to be made in advance, were decisions we'd all been very much a part of <laughs> and planning and discussing and all that. And the way the uh, Elizabeth's hair would change a little in style to match the Gracie wig. They both, they both wore wigs. Um, but down to the cadence and her, her manner of speech, um, these were late in the, these were, these were, ish, these were, I mean, we talked to Chris, Julianne and I talked about it and, and yes, there were, there were, to be honest, there were things in, in a kind of loose uh, upper palate that we did find interesting in, in Mary Kay Letourneau's speech that was a kickoff for her. And she took it further. And, and also this, this, this idea of how does this kind of original relationship occur? How do they, what, are, what, are the, what is the myth these two people tell each other about the roles they're playing? And it's not, she's not a pedophile, this woman. She doesn't have a history of like going after every little teenage boy that walks by. There's something that very specific that happened between these two people. But it's it's enshrouded in a in a fantasy, which is that she's the princess that needs to be rescued from the domestic tower. And he's the young virile knight, you know, almost like a Greco-Roman young knight, you know, who's gonna come in with all this sexual virility and and power and, and uh, beauty and, and save her. And so she plays the little girl and inspired aspects of the clothes and the manner of speech and the color palette and all these things helped us to sort of understand how this happened or, or the delusions that, that helped protect it, produce it. Uh, well, thank you so much. Looking forward to tonight. Thank you.